One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. A lot of you wanted me to do more about different Sufi orders. And this is fine by me, and I was already planning to do this because it is, after all, my main field of study. As a general tendency, I like to talk about schools of thought or individuals that are perhaps not as widely known and to highlight lesser known things. And so while I will eventually talk about orders or tariqas like the Qadriya or the Shadliya or the Mevleviya, for example, in this I will be discussing and diving into uh, a, a, a Sufi order that is somewhat less known but still very significant historically. The Nimatullahi order is the largest Sufi tariqah in Iran today and it is a very interesting Sufi order because of the fact that it is basically exclusively made up of Shi'i Muslims. And this seems to fly in the face of the claim that Sufism is exclusively a Sunni affair. Another very interesting aspect of this order is that while it is, for the most part, a Shi'i order, the founder of the tariqah himself, or the person you know, around whom it was founded, was by most accounts a Sunni Muslim. Being a very significant and interesting figure in himself, even aside from his connection to the order, we are today going to explore the life and teachings of the great Sufi saint Shah Nimatullah Wali, as well as the order that carries his name. Shah Nimatullah was born as Sa'id Nuruddin Nimatullah in the year 1331 and in the city of Aleppo, which is in modern-day Syria. He has become known as one of the greatest Sufi saints of his time and as a master poet. He is widely called a Persian poet and mystic today due to the fact that he wrote most of his poetry in Persian, but in fact his father was Arab and his mother was Persian, making him a child of both worlds. His father was involved in Sufism, so it was natural that Nimatullah would also end up in that same context. As mentioned, he grew up in Aleppo, which at the time was a center for the study of the Andalusian mystic Ibn Arabi and his school of thought. 
We thus see him studying both the regular religious sciences, but also becoming a devoted follower of the school of Ibn Arabi, which is often called Wahdat al-Wujud, or the unity of being. And this is quite interesting, because it makes Shah Nimatullah one of the only founders of a major classical Sufi order that was a direct student of the, well, of the school of Ibn Arabi. Now, don't get me wrong, Ibn Arabi was incredibly influential on a universal level, and his ideas were adopted within groups belonging to most Sufi orders, but with Shah Nimatullah we have an example of the very founding figure of a tariqa that studied his school directly, and especially his great work Fusuz al-Hikam, the Ringstones of Wisdom. Generally, it seems that Nimatullah was a widely educated man in his youth and was a person of great learning. Um, he studied various fields of philosophy as well as theology and Sufism, as we have mentioned, um, including works by, for example, the great philosopher Ibn Sina. But eventually, sometime maybe in his early 20s, he realized that no amount of book learning could satisfy his spiritual cravings. He himself writes, quote, I perceived all the professors of exoteric knowledge to be full of learning with no application, day and night wasting their lives pursuing discussion, chatter, and empty disputation. Instead, he longed to properly taste the intuitive knowledge and experience of the Sufis. And so at this time, he started to wander around the region looking for a master who could guide him. And he seems to have tried several masters out. He met many masters, but none of them really satisfied him. He often even saw himself as being superior to those masters. But at the age of 24, when he was in Mecca, he ran into the Yemenite master, Sheikh Abdul and was so impressed by his spiritual personality that he immediately became his devoted student. He spent seven years as a student of Sheikh Al-Yafi, who taught him the secrets and spiritual knowledge of the Sufi path, and Nimatullah eventually became a master himself. The years under the tutelage of Yafi had made him an experienced and powerful mystic who quickly gained the reputation for his um, deeds and his personality. He traveled to Egypt for a while and generally just around the Middle East, including return trips to Mecca. He started to gather students in his travels and his reputation increasingly spread. But eventually Nematullah made his way to the Iranian cultural region, the homeland of his mother's family. And for basically the rest of his life he stayed in this region, first in Transoxania and the city of Samarkand where he had a run-in with the famous king Tamerlane or Timur. Shah Nematullah seems to have been a very famous and sought-after man when he arrived in the city, and Timur himself respected him greatly as a spiritual master. So many people in the region flocked to him that he was forced to flee to the mountains where he performed a few spiritual retreats, known as khalwa in Arabic. Some say he did this in the middle of the winter snow, which sounds pretty unpleasant. These long spiritual retreats only of course increased his reputation for the local population once he returned, uh, but Nimatullah soon found himself in some trouble with the establishment. Although being completely uninterested in politics himself, some started to see his growing group of followers as a problem. Some of the king's advisors started to spread rumors that Shah Nimatullah was a Shiite revolutionary who sought to overthrow the king. Because of this, the king, Timur or Tamerlane, probably also because he respected Nimatullah so much, just asked him to leave the region, uh, which Nimatullah eventually did, but not before writing some very sassy poetry about the king. 
There's a great section from the Matilda's writings, which both serves as a kind of diss against the king, but also is a good way to show the kind of relationship or ideas within Sufism about worldly versus spiritual power. Quote, While your domain stretches from China to Shiraz, mine is a realm which has no frontier. Or the following lines, which is one of those rare examples where a play on words worked just as well in English translation as it does in the original Persian. Quote, I've seen many a king in this world, but there is no sultan as lame as Tamerlane. After this, he would again travel around the region and stay in different cities. From Mashhad to Herat, where he got married, to later living in the mountains near Kirman. But as his fame had become so great and people wanted to seek him out for counsel, he decided to move closer to civilization and eventually settled in the village of Mahan, just south of Kirman, where he spent his last years. He was already a very old man at this time, and indeed Shah Nematullah lived an impressively long life, passing away in the year 1431 at the age of 100. His tomb still stands in Mahan today and is a testament to the great stature of this master. Shanamatullah's fame, which had already developed while he lived, only continued to grow after he died, and especially with the Sufi tariqah or Sufi order that was named after him. And his own son, Sheikh Khalilullah, was the first Qutb, so-called, or pole leader of this tariqah, and this line uh, this silsila, this spiritual transmission, um, survives even to this day. But what was it about Shani Matullah that was so special? What did he teach and say? Well, for one thing, the sheikh wrote a lot. He wrote a lot of poetry in the Persian language, especially from the time he was 60 or so. So from the time he was 60, he started to write poetry. And in this poetry, he often expresses the ideas of wahdat al-wujud, or the unity of being. He also wrote many treatises of you know, mystical theology and philosophy, and especially treatises in which he discusses um, the school of Ibn Arabi and its various themes and concepts. But he was primarily a teacher, of course concerned with the spiritual development of his students through mystical practices. And many of these teachings have of course served as the basis of the Nimatullahi order. One thing that strikes you about him is what appears to be a great softness and gentleness, as well as a kind of tolerance even. As I mentioned in the beginning, the Nimatullahi order is primarily a Shi'i Sufi order today, but Shah Nimatullah was, according to most sources, a Sunni, belonging to the Hanafi school of law and being taught exclusively by Sunni teachers, both in law and in Sufism. But he also appears to have taught a great openness in attitude towards any such outward aspects of religion, steering away from things like sectarianism. Quote, if they ask me what is my sect, O oh, unaware ones, what sect indeed? I have the mirrors of Shafi and Abu Hanifa standing before me. All the founders are good for the path, but I have a sect from my ancestor. In the science of the prophets and walis, I possess the most attainments. 
As a Sufi teacher and master, Shana Matula emphasized a certain openness and tolerance to his students. So whereas other Sufi masters at the time could often be quite elitist in their approach, only taking in certain students that were deemed worthy to be taught, Shana Matula made a point to always accept anyone who sincerely uh, came to him or sought him out, saying, quote, I accept anyone who has been rejected by all the friends of God perfecting him according to his capacity. His lifestyle was also quite characteristic. While he definitely had access to a lot of power, Nimatullah lived a life of ascetic poverty and detachment. But not completely so. Indeed, when not engaged in teaching students on the Sufi path or writing his various writings, he would engage in farming, a profession with which he supported himself. This point was in fact important for his teachings to his students. He rejected any ascetic life completely separated from society, instead urging his students to take up professions and to make a living. This was in fact the best form of spiritual practice, according to him. In the words of the late Dr. Javad Nurbakhsh, the former leader of one of the branches of the Nimatullahi order today, Nimatullah did this to show his students that, quote, the best form of self-austerity and the most excellent way to purify the heart and purge the self was by service to society and kindness to other human beings. Complete asceticism only leads to apathy and depression, whereas an active life in society and in service and unconditional love for other human beings is the best way to expand the heart and develop on the spiritual path towards unity. He expresses this point very succinctly in verse, quote, Remember God, O friend, abundantly. Engage in inner work while doing the outer. Connected to this, the sheikh also prohibited his students from wearing any kind of special Sufi dress or clothing, as many others would. To him, the ideal was that the inner state, the inner spiritual state of the mystic, should not be flaunted outwardly. Instead, the most accomplished mystic should outwardly appear to be like any other person, so his inner state should not be shown off, because then people would uh, risk falling into vanity and, 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 well, to showing off, which would really go against the idea of, of annihilating your ego and yourself and, and working towards unity. These things, I think, expresses the general kind of gentleness and loving attitude that we find about the Sheikh in his writings and the writings about him. He seems to have emphasized a loving attitude towards all other human beings as well as other creatures. To hurt any creature is blasphemy, according to Nimatullah. Quote, in all my life, a single ant was never offended by me. As long as I've been, I've been so. As long as I'll be, I'll be so. Or, quote, if an ant stings me, I would not hurt it. What do I have to do with people's hurting? Near us, weeping is better than hurting. So do weep, so you are not caught by those who like to hurt creatures. Heartbreaking is blasphemous in the path of lovers. Why then hurt creatures if you are a true Muslim? And lastly, quote, Whatever we see has an image of our beloved. Therefore, we do not scratch anyone's heart a hair's width. Not only does this represent his ethical attitude towards living lovingly in this world, it also contains telling theological clues. His adherence to the doctrine of the unity of being, by saying that everything has an image of our beloved, that is God, is pretty clear here. 
And this is indeed a very significant part of the teachings and life of Shah Nematullah Wali. He was a master and teacher of the school that is often called Wahdat al-Wujud or the unity of being. Now the ideas of this school and the philosophy and practice, all this is very complex and, and, and multifaceted and has a long history. But for the purpose of better understanding the figure that we're talking about today, the doctrine of the unity of being is an idea that posits that God is all that exists. Claiming that the world exists independently of God and that it has existence of its own is equal to polytheism or shirk, which is the greatest sin in Islam. So what Ibn Arabi and his followers says is that while the created world and God is absolutely different from each other and diametrical opposites to each other, God is identical to being itself and God therefore is the being which is manifested and refracted in the world of limitation, that is in creation. The world is the shadow of God. The existence of the world is God's very being and the multiplicity of things in the world is a reflection or manifestation of God's infinite divine attributes. And in the writings of Shahnamatullah Wali, this is one of the most recurring themes. Everything from his poetry to his prose writings, it all kind of revolves around this basic idea of the inherent oneness of reality and that God's immanence and non-difference from our own realities. Quote, According to our faith, lover and beloved are one. To us, what is desire? The desirer and the desired are one. They tell me, seek him in his essence. But how should I seek? The seeker and sought are one. In his vast diwan of poetry, he expresses the experience and reality of this oneness in various ways. One of his favorite metaphors is to talk about the sea as the being or reality of God, with the bubbles and waves representing its manifestations and the determined forms of being, thus showing the ultimate illusory nature of multiplicity. Quote, the wave, the sea, and the bubble are all one. All is one, nothing else, whether less or more. And the following lines, which are a kind of remix of a famous section from Ibn Arabi's Fusuz al-Hikm, kind of brings the whole message home. Quote, we are imagination, and he, reality. Where is there anything other than one in the two worlds? Whoever uncovers this secret well is a perfect mystic. The personality and teachings of Shah Nimatullah Wali serves as the basis for the Nimatullahi Sufi order, which is the largest Sufi order in Iran today. As I mentioned earlier, the Sheikh's son, Khalilullah, was the spiritual successor to his father and became the leader of his tariqah. He and his family eventually moved to India and the region of Deccan, which after this point became the center for the order. Shanamatullah himself had good contact with the ruling Bahmanids in the Deccan from which the Tariqa received patronage. It seems that the Nimatullahis, following the master's death, had a much warmer relationship with the Bahmanids than with the Timurids who ruled in Iran, which is probably the reason for their relocation. But only a short while later, the Safavid dynasty would rise to power in Iran, a Shi'i empire which for the most part had a very negative attitude towards Sufism. This led to many Sufi orders migrating from Iran and also resulted in the decline of the Nimatullahi order there. Instead, India and the Deccan became the center for the order for a few centuries, but even here, the order wasn't really that large. 
They often held high positions in society and were sometimes close with the aristocracy, but they never reached the same kind of prominence of some other Sufi orders. It isn't until the late 18th century when the Pir or Qutb of the time, Shah Ali Rida, sent Masum Ali Shah to return to Iran and re-establish the order there, which he was very successful in doing. As such, during the 19th century, the Nimatullahi order rose to great prominence in Iran and became the largest Sufi order in that region, often again being quite close with the ruling powers. And the Nimatullahis remain the most prominent order, Sufi order in Iran today, even though their relationship with the state or the government is strained, to say the least, They're, they have been the subject of a lot of oppression, especially since the revolution in 1979. I know what a lot of you are probably thinking right now. If Shah Nematullah was a Sunni, how come his order is now a Shi'i order? Well, some have claimed that it is the result of the Sheikh's open and non-sectarian attitude, and I'm sure that that helped with this transformation and development, but that was surely not the main cause. Instead, we have to look at social and political factors. The Safavids in Iran were Shiites, as mentioned, and so the Nematullahis in Iran adapted Shiism as a result of this political development. It was obviously beneficial in various ways to adhere to the doctrine of the state. Similarly, in India, there were social and political factors behind this change there as well. In the words of the scholar Fabrizio Speziale, quote, in the Deccan, the Shiitization of the order occurred basically because the spiritual authority was transmitted within a Shi'i family, that of Mir Mahmud. Afterwards, in the milieu of the Shi'i disciples of Hyderabad who congregated around these masters, emerged Masum Ali Shah, who connected the Indian branch to the Shi'i culture of Iran. A not-so-exciting, yet perhaps expected answer to this question. Sometime in the late 19th century, there were several splits in the order, so the order was split into various branches. One of these branches, the often so-called Munawar Ali Shahi order, um, was quite politically active during the 20th century and became very widespread and popular through the teachings and, and leadership of Dr. Javad Nurbakhsh, who relocated outside of Iran to Europe after the revolution in 1979 and established the Nimatullahi order in the so-called Western world as well. The version of the branch of the Nimatullahi order that was led by Dr. Nurbakhsh has a very open attitude. They even accept non-Muslims as initiates in the order, and he has presented a version of the order that has been um, very appealing to many Western audiences. After his death in 2008, his son Ali Reza Nurbakhsh took over as leader of the order currently. But another branch which emerged during the 20th century is often called the Nimatullahi Gunabadi order, also sometimes the Sultan Ali Shahi order. And this is the branch of the order that is most prominent in Iran today. Its former Qutub or leader, Nur Ali Tabande, passed away only about a year ago, may he rest in peace, and had faced persecution from the leadership in Iran, being for example placed in house arrest for the last period of his life. The Gonabadi branch of the order is often considered relatively conservative compared at least to the branch led by Dr. Nurbakhsh by, for example, requiring conversion to Islam or requiring people to be Muslims in order to 
be part of the order. The Nematullahi order, as most other orders, is of course today diverse, as we have seen, and consists of many different branches. But they all trace their lineage and history back to the Saint Shah Nematullah Wali, who we have discussed. And so the teachings and practices of Shah Nematullah Wali serves as the basis um, for the practices and teachings of the order generally. Because Shah Nematullah spent his time farming and encouraged his followers to pick up professions, this has been one of the characteristics of the order um, since then as well. The Nematullahis have often been active in society and holding um, you know, different jobs and often positions in politics or in society. Generally, they have not been secluded ascetics living in caves, but they have practiced what is often called solitude in the crowd. While some sources claim that Nimatullah used to have musical accompaniment when he recited his poetry, the order does not have any particular performance of music or sama as a central aspect of its religious practices. There is, of course, diversity and music has played a role in the practices of the order, but not to the same degree or to the same ritual importance as in orders like the Mevlevia or the Shishtiya, for example. Furthermore, because of Shah Nimatullah's strong adherence to the school, of Ibn Arabi and Wahdat al-Wujud, this teaching of the unity of being has also been a prominent and recurring theme in the order generally. We can see this in the poetry and writings of the founder, but also in many of the leaders of the order historically and today. The Nimatullahi order is not as large or widespread as some of the other famous Sufi orders like the Qadiriya or the Shadiliya or Naqshbandiya. They are pretty localized to Iran today and historically to the Deccan in India. But as we have seen from the 19th century, or sorry, the 20th century, from the 1970s or so forward, they have indeed become a lot more widespread through the spreading of the order by its masters to places like Europe and North America, you could argue that indeed the, the Nimatullahi order has become quite widespread across the world today. Changing and adapting to new environments and contexts, as these kinds of movements always do, the Nimatullahi order today is a diverse um, order or tariqa that has many branches that can differ on certain doctrinal or practical uh, aspects. But the Nimatullahi order, in a more general sense, all carries on the teachings and, and practices of the great medieval Sufi saint from Aleppo, whose teachings about gentleness, charity, and loving attitude toward fellow human beings and creatures is inspiring not only to the followers of his particular path, but to all of us as human beings in general. Certainly a lot of us could use a lesson from a person like that. I'll see you next time. 